Section twenty-three of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One, by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hints for the Rambler, Itard forty-two, Anno Domini seventeen fifty. Yet he was not altogether unprepared as a periodical writer, for I have in my possession a small duodecimo volume in which he has written in the form of Mr. Locke's commonplace book a variety of hints for essays on different subjects he has marked upon the first blank leaf of it to the one hundred and twenty eighth page collections for the rambler and in another place in fifty two there were seventeen provided in ninety seven twenty one in one hundred and ninety twenty five at a subsequent period probably after the work was finished he added in all taken off provided materials thirty footnote of the first fifty-two ramblers forty-nine were wholly by johnson of the last one hundred and fifty-six one hundred and fifty-four he seems to say that in the first forty-nine seventeen were written from notes and in the last one hundred and fifty-four only thirteen sir john hawkins who was unlucky upon all occasions tells us that this method of accumulating intelligence had been practised by mr addison and is humorously described in one of the spectators footnote number forty-six wherein he feigns to have dropped his paper of notanda consisting of a diverting medley of broken sentences and loose hints which he tells us he had collected and meant to make use of much of the same kind as johnson's adversaria footnote hawkins's life of johnson page two six eight in square brackets page two six five boswell but the truth is that there is no resemblance at all between them addison's note was a fiction in which unconnected fragments of his lucubrations were purposely jumbled together in as odd a manner as he could in order to produce a laughable effect whereas johnson's abbreviations are all distinct and applicable to each subject of which the head is mentioned for instance, there is the following specimen. Youth's Entry, etc. Baxter's account of things in which he had changed his mind as he grew up. Voluminous. No wonder. If every man was to tell or mark on how many subjects he has changed, it would make volumes. But the change is not always observed by man's self from pleasure to biz business to quiet from thoughtfulness to reflect to piety from dissipation to domestic by impercept grade but the change is certain dial Footnote. the sly shadow steals away upon the dial and the quickest eye can distinguish no more than that it is gone Glanville, quoted in Johnson's Dictionary, end of footnote. 
non progredi progressese conspicimus look back consider what was thought at some dist period hope predom in youth mind not willingly indulges unpleasing thoughts the world lies all enamelled before him as a distant prospect sun-gilt this most beautiful image of the enchanting delusion of youthful prospect has not been used in any of johnson's essays Boswell, end of footnote. inequality is only found by coming to it love is to be all joy children excellent fame to be constant caresses of the great applauses of the learned smiles of beauty beer of disgrace bashfulness finds things of less importance miscarriages forgot like excellencies if remembered of no import danger of sinking into negligence of reputation lest the fear of disgrace destroy activity confidence in himself long tract of life before him no thought of sickness embarrassment of affairs distraction of family public calamities no sense of the prevalence of bad habits negligent of time ready to undertake careless to pursue all changed by time confident of others unsuspecting as unexperienced imagining himself secure against neglect never imagines they will venture to treat him ill ready to trust expecting to be trusted convinced by time of the selfishness the meanness the cowardice the treachery of men youth ambitious as thinking honours easy to be had different kinds of praise pursued at different periods of the gay in youth danger hurt etc despised of the fancy in manhood ambish stocks bargains of the wise and sober in old age seriousness formality maxims but general only of the rich otherwise age is happy but at last everything referred to riches no having fame honour influence without subjection to caprice horace footnote from horace ars poetica book one line one seven five he takes his motto for the number multa ferontani venientes commoda secum multa recedentes adimunt the blessings flowing in with life's full tide down with our ebb of life decreasing glide francis and a footnote hard it would be if men entered life with the same views with which they leave it or left as they enter it no hope 
no undertaking, no regard to benevolence, no fear of disgrace, etc. Youth to be taught the piety of age, age to retain the honour of youth. This, it will be observed, is the sketch of number 196 of The Rambler. I shall gratify my readers with another specimen. Hints for the Rambler, Eitart 41, Confederacies Difficult, Why? Seldom in war a match for single persons, nor in peace. Therefore kings make themselves absolute. Confederacies in learning, every great work the work of one, Pru. Scholars' friendship like ladies, Scrivebamus, etc., Ma. Footnote, Book 12, line 96, in square brackets 95. In tucam aemulam omnium suorum studiorum, Malone. End of footnote. The apple of discord, the laurel of discord, the poverty of criticism, Swift's opinion of the power of six geniuses united. Footnote. There never appears, says Swift, more than five or six men of genius in an age, but if they were united, the world could not stand before them. Johnson's Works, Volume 4, page 18. End of footnote. That union scarce possible. His remarks, just, man a social, not steady nature. Drawn to man by words, repelled by passions. Orb, drawn by attraction, rip, in square brackets repelled, by centrifugal. Common danger unites by crushing other passions, but they return. Equality hinders compliance. Superiority produces insolence and envy. Too much regard in each to private interest, too little. The mischiefs of private and exclusive societies. The fitness of social attraction diffused through the whole. The mischiefs of too partial love of our country. Contraction of moral duties. Oi feloi om felos. Footnote. In the first edition this is printed O feloi om felos. In the second O feloi om felos. In the corrections to the second we find for O read oi. In the third it is printed as above. In three editions we have therefore five readings of the first word. See post April of fifteen seventeen seventy eight where Johnson says An old Greek said he that has friends has no friend and April the twenty fourth, seventeen seventy nine, where he says Garrick had friends, but no friend. End of footnote. Every man moves upon his own centre, and therefore repels others from too near a contact, though he may comply with some general laws. 
of confederacy with superiors every one knows the inconvenience with equals no authority every man his own opinion his own interest man and wife hardly united scarce ever without children computation if two to one against two how many against five if confederacies were easy useless many oppressors many if possible only to some dangerous principum amicitias gravesque principum amicitias and fatal friendships of the guilty great francis horace odes book two ode one line four and a footnote here we see the embryo of number forty five of the adventurer and it is a confirmation of what i shall presently have occasion to mention that the papers in that collection marked t were written by johnson footnote post under january the first seventeen fifty three and a footnote the rambler's slow sail anno domini seventeen fifty this scanty preparation of materials will not however much diminish our wonder at the extraordinary fertility of his mind for the proportion which they bear to the number of essays which he wrote is very small and it is remarkable that those for which he had made no preparation are as rich and as highly finished as those for which the hints were lying by him it is also to be observed that the papers formed from his hints are worked up with such strength and elegance that we almost lose sight of the hints which become like drops in the bucket indeed in several instances he has made a very slender use of them so that many of them remain still unapplied Footnote. sir john hawkins has selected from this little collection of materials what he calls the rudiments of two of the papers of the rambler but he has not been able to read the manuscript distinctly thus he writes page two six six sailors fate any mansion whereas the original is sailors life my aversion he has also transcribed the unappropriated hints on writers for bread in which he deciphers these notable passages one in latin fatui non famai instead of fami non famai johnson having in his mind what tuanus says of the learned german antiquary and linguist Zylander, who he tells us lived in such poverty that he was supposed fami non famai scribere and another in French, des jantes tifat, in square brackets fatu, et affamé à agent, instead of dégoûté de femme, an old word for renommé, et affamé d'agent. The manuscript being written in an exceedingly small hand is indeed very hard to read, but it would have been better to have left blanks than to write nonsense. Boswell, end of footnote. As the Rambler was entirely the work of one man, there was, of course, such a uniformity in its texture 
was very much to exclude the charm of variety. Footnote. When we know that of the 208 ramblers all but five were written by Johnson, it is amusing to read a passage in one of Miss Talbot's letters to Mrs. Carter, dated October the 20th, 1750. Mr. Johnson would, I fear, be mortified to hear that people know a paper of his own by the sure mark of somewhat a little excessive, a little exaggerated in the expression. Carter Correspondence, Book 1, page 357, end of footnote. And the grave and often solemn cast of thinking which distinguished it from other periodical papers made it for some time not generally liked. So slowly did this excellent work, of which twelve editions have now issued from the press, gain upon the world at large, that even in the closing number the author says, I have never been much a favourite of the public. Footnote. The ramblers certainly were little noticed at first. Smart the poet first mentioned them to me as excellent papers before I had heard anyone else speak of them. When I went into Norfolk in the autumn of 1751, I found but one person, the Reverend Mr. Squires, a man of learning and a general purchaser of new books, who knew anything of them. Before I left Norfolk in the year 1760, the ramblers were in high favour among persons of learning and good taste. Others there were, devoid of both, who said that the hard words in the rambler were used by the author to render his dictionary indispensably necessary. Burney. We have notices of the rambler in the Carter correspondence. May 28, 1750. The author ought to be cautioned not to use over many hard words. In yesterday's paper, a very pretty one indeed, we had equiponderant, and another so hard I cannot remember it. In square brackets, adcetitious, both in one sentence. December the 17th, 1750. Mr. Cave complains of him for not admitting correspondence. This does mischief. In the main, I think he is to be applauded for it. But why then does he not write now and then on the living manners of the times? In writing on April the 22nd, 1752, just after the rambler had come to an end, Miss Talbot says, Indeed, it is a sad thing that such a paper should have met with discouragement from wise and learned and good people too. Many of the disputes it has cost me, and not once did I come off triumphant. Mrs. Carter replied, Many a battle have I too fought for him in the country, but with little success. Murphy says, Of this excellent production, the number sold on each day did not amount to five hundred. Of course, the bookseller who paid the author four guineas a week did not carry on a successful trade. Murphy's Johnson, page 59, end of footnote. George the Second, not an Augustus, Itart 41. Yet very soon after its commencement, there were who felt and acknowledged its uncommon excellence. Verses in its praise appeared in the newspapers, 
and the editor of the gentleman's magazine mentions in october his having received several letters to the same purpose from the learned Footnote. richardson wrote to cave on august the ninth seventeen fifty after forty-one numbers had appeared i hope the world tastes them for its own sake i hope the world tastes them the author i can only guess at there is but one man i think that could write them richardson's correspondence volume one page one six five cave replied mr johnson is the great rambler being as you observe the only man who can furnish two such papers in a week besides his other great business he mentioned the recommendation it received from high quarters and continued notwithstanding whether the price of tuppence or the unfavourable season of their first publication hinders the demand no boast can be made of it johnson had not wished his name to be known cave says that mr carrick and others who knew the author's powers and style from the first unadvisedly asserting their suspicions overturned the scheme of secrecy Ibid, pages one six eight to one seventy end of footnote the student or oxford and cambridge miscellany in which mr bonnell thornton and mr coleman were the principal writers describes it as a work that exceeds anything of the kind ever published in this kingdom some of the spectators excepted if indeed they may be excepted and afterwards may the public favours crown his merits and may not the english under the auspicious reign of george the second neglect a man who had he lived in the first century would have been one of the greatest favourites of augustus this flattery of the monarch had no effect it is too well known that the second george never was an augustus to learning or genius Footnote. Horace Walpole, while justifying George the Second against bookish men who have censured his neglect of literature, says, In truth, I believe King George would have preferred a guinea to a composition as perfect as Alexander's Feast. Reign of George the Second, volume three, page three hundred four, end of footnote. Mrs. Johnson's praise of the Rambler, Anno Domini, seventeen fifty johnson told me with an amiable fondness a little pleasing circumstance relative to this work mrs johnson in whose judgment and taste he had great confidence said to him after a few numbers of the rambler had come out i thought very well of you before but i did not imagine you could have written anything equal to this Footnote. dr johnson said to an acquaintance of mine my other works are wine and water but my rambler is pure wine rogers table talk page ten in the footnote distant praise from whatever quarter is not so delightful as that of a wife whom a man loves and esteems her approbation may be said to come home to his bosom and being so near its effect is most sensible and permanent 
Mr. James Elphinston. Footnote. See post April the fifth, seventeen seventy-two, April the nineteenth, seventeen seventy-three, and April the ninth, seventeen seventy-eight. Footnote. Who has since published various works and who was ever esteemed by Johnson as a worthy man, happened to be in Scotland while the Rambler was coming out in single papers at London with a laudable zeal at once for the improvement of his countrymen and the reputation of his friend he suggested and took the charge of an edition of those essays at edinburgh which followed progressively the london publication Footnote. it was executed in the printing office of sands murray and cochrane with uncommon elegance upon writing paper of a duodecimus size and with the greatest correctness and mr elphinstone enriched it with translations of the mottoes when completed it made eight handsome volumes it is unquestionably the most accurate and beautiful edition of this work and there being but a small impression it has now become scarce and sells at a very high price boswell End of footnote. the following letter written at this time though not dated will show how much pleased Johnson was with this publication, and what kindness and regard he had for Mr. Elphinstone. Letters to Mr. Elphinstone, Eitart 41 To Mr. James Elphinstone, no date, dear sir. I cannot but confess the failures of my correspondence, but hope the same regard which you express for me on every other occasion will incline you to forgive me. I am often, very often, ill, and when I am well I am obliged to work, and indeed have never much used myself to punctuality. You are, however, not to make unkind inferences when I forbear to reply to your kindness, for be assured I never receive a letter from you without great pleasure and a very warm sense of your generosity and friendship, which I heartily blame myself for not cultivating with more care. In this, as in many other cases, I go wrong in opposition to conviction. For I think scarce any temporal good equally to be desired with the regard and familiarity of worthy men. I hope we shall be some time nearer to each other and have a more ready way of pouring out our hearts. I am glad that you still find encouragement to proceed in your publication and shall beg the favour of six more volumes to add to my former six when you can, with any convenience, send them me. Please to present a set in my name to Mr. Rudderman, of whom I hear that his learning is not his highest excellence. Footnote. Mr. Thomas Rudderman, the learned grammarian of Scotland, well known for his various excellent works and for his accurate editions of several authors. He was also a man of a most worthy private character. His zeal for the royal house of Stuart did not render him less estimable in Dr. Johnson's eye. Boswell, end of footnote. I have transcribed the mottoes and returned them, I hope not too late, of which I think many very happily performed. Mr. Cave has put the last in the magazine. Footnote. 
in the gentleman's magazine for september seventeen fifty and for october seventeen fifty two translations of many of the mottoes were given but in each number there are several of elphinstons johnson seems to speak of only one End of footnote. in which i think he did well i beg of you to write soon and to write often and to write long letters which i hope in time to repay you but you must be a patient creditor i have however this of gratitude that i think of you with regard when i do not perhaps give the proofs which i ought of being so your most obliged and most humble servant samuel johnson this year he wrote to the same gentleman another letter upon a mournful occasion the death of a mother anno domini seventeen fifty to mr james elphinstone september twenty fifth seventeen fifty dear sir you have as i find by every kind of evidence lost an excellent mother and i hope you will not think me incapable of partaking of your grief i have a mother now eighty-two years of age whom therefore i must soon lose unless it please god that she rather should mourn for me footnote writing to miss porter on july the twelfth seventeen forty nine he said i was afraid your letter had brought me ill news of my mother whose death is one of the few calamities on which i think with terror croker's boswell page sixty two end of footnote I read the letters in which you relate your mother's death to Mrs. Strawn. Footnote. Mr. Strawn was Elphinstone's brother-in-law, post April the ninth, seventeen seventy-eight. End of footnote. And I think I do myself honour when I tell you that I read them with tears. But tears are neither to you nor to me of any further use, when once the tribute of nature has been paid business of life summons us away from useless grief and calls us to the exercise of those virtues of which we are lamenting our deprivation the greatest benefit which one friend can confer upon another is to guard and excite and elevate his virtues this your mother will still perform if you diligently preserve the memory of her life and of her death a life so far as i can learn useful wise and innocent and a death resigned peaceful and holy i cannot forbear to mention that neither reason nor revelation denies you to hope that you may increase her happiness by obeying her precepts and that she may in her present state look with pleasure upon every act of virtue to which her instructions or example have contributed whether this be more than a pleasing dream or a just opinion of separate spirits is indeed of no great importance to us when we consider ourselves as acting under the eye of god yet surely there is something pleasing in the belief that our separation from those whom we love is merely corporeal and it may be a great incitement to virtuous friendship if it can be made probable that that union that has received the divine approbation shall continue to eternity there is one expedient by which you may in some degree continue her presence 
if you write down minutely what you remember of her from your earliest years you will read it with great pleasure and receive from it many hints of soothing recollection when time shall remove her yet farther from you and your grief shall be matured to veneration to this however painful for the present i cannot but advise you as to a source of comfort and satisfaction in the time to come for all comfort and all satisfaction is sincerely wished you by dear sir your most obliged most obedient and most humble servant samuel johnson End of section twenty three